Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. First in moments, we'll hear from Brooke Harrington on this topic of offshore money. And then at the bottom of the hour, we'll hear from Kalia Kuno about building a cooperative economy in Jackson, Mississippi. First, offshore money. In early November, a set of over 13 million documents from the Bermuda-based law firm Appleby were released to the public. They detail a vast effort to hide the wealth of some of the world's richest people from the tax authorities, as well as creditors and estranged family members. This follows the leak last year of the Panama Papers, a similar set of documents revealing how assets are hidden offshore. Here's Brooke Harrington, a professor at the Copenhagen Business School and author of the book Capital Without Borders, Wealth Managers in the 1%, published last year by Harvard University Press. Brooke Harrington. Anything in these uh, Paradise Papers that surprised you, or is it pretty much uh, the world you've known all along? I was a little surprised that uh, that Queen Elizabeth would take the risk of using offshore structures. I would have thought that patriotism and duty to country would have um, precluded that. But it does sort of reinforce my observation since the Panama Papers that above a certain level of wealth, literally everybody does this. You quote uh, a popular study of uh, these offshore financial centers as saying that the, the characters involved are a peculiar mix of castle-owning members of European aristocracies, fanatical supporters of Ayn Rand, members of the world's intelligence services, global criminals, British public schoolboys, assorted lords and ladies, and bankers galore. That's pretty much the entire cast of characters of the very rich we're talking about, right? Yeah. I, I was so struck after the Panama Papers by the photos or the, the images that the ICIJ put up online because you would see Lionel Messi right next to Jackie Chan, right next to Vladimir Putin and Assad of Syria and the, the prime minister of Iceland. What do those people actually have in common? Apparently what they have in common is that they're part of this global class of people who are above the law. What part of the wealth distribution are we talking about? Where does this start? 99th percentile? Is this the 1%? Is it the one-tenth of 1%? What's the demographic here? Happily enough, there's there's just been a new study from some economists, including a guy here in Copenhagen, at Copenhagen University, and they say it's it's the 0.01% who are the major users of these uh, offshore facilities. So the the 1% we would just call like affluent, but it's the 0.01% who really start to get into the kind of money where you can afford to pay a wealth manager because it's not cheap to have someone create and manage offshore structures for you. I was struck, though, that uh, in your uh, your chapter about who these people are, uh, that the salaries are apparently rather low by the standards of finance, two or three hundred thousand dollars. Not you know, this is not something that a big shot at Goldman Sachs would uh, be impressed with. Uh, why, if this is so crucial to the maintenance of of wealth of of this point zero one percent, why why are they so um, modestly compensated? Well, I, I asked this question to as many wealth managers as I could, and, and part of the answer I got is, first of all, most of the people who do wealth management for a living live in, in places where there's low to zero taxation. So those hundreds of thousands of dollars they're getting in their, in their salaries are, that's not just gross, it's net. Second of all, for a lot of people who do this for a living, it's a lifestyle choice. They could be doubling their salary working in corporate law or corporate finance, but they'd be working 80 to 100 hour weeks. Whereas a lot of them told me explicitly, I make a really good living working a nine to five job. Plus, I get taken on private planes, I I get taken on vacation and, and leisure activities with my ultra wealthy clients. 
I have many of the benefits of being an ultra wealthy person, but I get to have like a normal job that, that isn't going to keep me away from, from my family and, and having fun in life. And I get to live in paradise, you know, like the Cayman Islands. Buzz, also uh, impressed that uh, some bankers look down on these folks because they're not growing money, they're just protecting it. That's right. That's right. Um, compliance is very important to wealth managers. Um, I have a hard time explaining this to some of my colleagues in sociology who say, well, of course, wealth managers are doing illegal things. And I said, not if they have a brain in their head. And, and for the most part, they're extremely intelligent people because what they have to do is, is very complex technically and also from a, a socio-emotional intelligence point of view. So they would never willingly do something that they know to be illegal because that's going to put them at huge risk, not just of professional sanctions, but of losing their whole livelihood because no client wants to get dragged into court, even if they get off on whatever charges are laid against them. Just the fact of, of being exposed by being charged with something is a disaster because the whole name of the game is secrecy. And as soon as you get charged with a crime, your name is in the paper and you're faced with potential exposure of all your private financial dealings. That's apocalyptic for many of these people. I would think, too, that uh, they would almost be a matter of professional pride to do all these uh, extravagant things fully within the law. It is. It is. One of the people I interviewed when I asked him what he liked best about his job, he said, I love playing cat and mouse with the law. It's a game for him to spend 24-7, 365, figuring out how to get right up to the edge of legality, but not cross the line. So give us an idea of how these things work. I'm a rich person with, I don't know, a billion dollars I want to hide from the authorities, or maybe my creditors, or maybe a part of my family I don't like. What do I do? If you live in, say, continental Europe, you'd probably be introduced by your banker to someone who can manage your affairs offshore. Most of the work that needs to be done would not be legal in continental Europe or the U.S., at least if you were a passport holder of, of any of the countries in that region. So you'd have to get stuff offshore. And like in likelihood, you know, your billion dollars of assets wouldn't be just one thing. They'd be a bunch of different things like vacation properties, yachts, financial instruments, a family business. And each of those would have to be treated separately because all these tax havens compete with each other to form a little niche. So Switzerland doesn't go head to head with the Cayman Islands. Cayman creates its own special niche laws to say, be the best place to put your family business. Um, whereas say the, the Cook Islands is the place where you might want to put your art collection. It might need to be said for people who don't know, the business itself and the art collection don't literally get migrated to those offshore centers. They're just sort of booked there for legal purposes. It's a little bit weird to, to think of just having stuff booked almost in an imaginary way in an offshore center, but it's perfectly legal to do that. What that gets you is that you can put the asset under the protection of the law that allows you the most freedom to do what you want with that asset. So, for example, if you want to avoid the U United Nations Convention on trade in certain kinds of very precious and rare art, you'll put your art collection in a Cook Islands Trust because then you're sort of immune to that United Nations Convention. You can, you can sell the art. You can rent it out to museums 
without being constrained by those international laws. You can also reap, reap profits from trading in violation of international trade embargoes and not get in trouble. You can hide money from relatives that you want to disinherit or divorce without giving them a penny. Certain jurisdictions specialize in allowing wealthy people to do that. So the wealth manager would have to have a, a long conversation with you in which you, you laid out a lot of very personal information about what your concerns were, what your goals were, and exactly what kinds of assets and liabilities you had. This is part of the uh, what you said earlier about the uh, socio-emotional um, intelligence that's required. It's not just a matter of uh, money and law. It's like the entire client's life. Right. And, and that, to me, it makes this profession particularly fascinating because, you know, you can be a good surgeon technically, but a jerk as a person, you know, no bedside manner, no empathy, no nothing. But people will still come to you because they trust you to be the best person to operate on their brain tumor. To be a good wealth manager, you not only have to be top of your game in terms of legal financial expertise, you have to have really extraordinary skills at understanding concerns of multiple cultures, often very different from your own. And you, you have to be a good psychologist. Several of the people I interviewed said, um, I'm a social worker for the rich. And they weren't kidding about it. A lot of the money we're talking about here are, are new fortunes that were created uh, in the 80s with uh, technological and financial revolutions, um, to, uh, you know, deregulations and things like that. So there, there hasn't been much of a generational transfer, maybe at most one we're talking about. So these are there's a lot of new money that's just sloshing around in great quantities. Is this what's behind um, the, the creation and the explosion in these offshore centers, these new fortunes that are really uh, very phobic about being confiscated? No, I would say not. And it's important to realize that economic studies of all these, uh, say, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who've, who've made new fortunes reveal that, you know, the, the American belief that like anybody can bootstrap themselves up and become the next Steve Jobs is actually not true, that the people who engage in entrepreneurial activity are doing so because they have inherited wealth behind them. They have a private safety net. So that's really what drives entrepreneurial activity. It's inherited wealth, not necessarily the level of wealth that would get you multiple offshore accounts, but enough so that if you fail multiple times as an entrepreneur, you're not going to be living in a box on the street. You just get up and do it again. You have family resources to fall back on. But to, to go back to the question of, well, what, what did spur the, the growth of offshore? Um, according to the, the 65 wealth managers that I interviewed all over the world, it had to do with a couple of things that happened simultaneously. Before I was born, there used to be things called currency controls. Some countries still have them. But what they mean is that you're not allowed to take more than a certain fixed amount out of the country. And it's usually rather a low amount. One of the people who taught me in the wealth management training program was a Brit, and he said in the 70s, if, if you were in England and wanted to go on holiday, you couldn't take more than 50 pounds sterling out of the country with you. It made going on holiday quite difficult. So imagine if you're a company and you wanted to do business because currency controls applied to you too. So companies had to sort of lobby for the creation of these these legal financial no man's lands, which we now know as, as offshore financial centers, where currency controls didn't apply. So Channel Islands of Jersey and Guernsey, they're technically still Great Britain. So you could get money there, but you could 
money could leave those places in much greater quantities than they could leave the main island of, of England. And so people started using Jersey and Guernsey and other crown dependencies of Great Britain as conduits to plug into the global economy. So that was one thing. The other thing was that in the 70s, a lot of countries began to develop extensive welfare states. And so taxes rose. And a lot of wealthy people didn't want to pay those taxes. And they saw the the lifting of currency controls or the availability of offshore financial centers. And they said, aha, if corporations can use them, I can use them too. And they would employ bankers and lawyers to get their personal wealth offshore in the same way that corporations were doing. And, and that just became this massive growth industry that multiplied on itself like a, like a snowball picking up snow as it rolled downhill because wealth, as Thomas Piketty has shown, tends to multiply itself much more than other kinds of, of economic assets. I'm speaking with Brooke Harrington, who teaches at the Copenhagen Business School and is author of Capital Without Borders, published by Harvard University Press. As I was reading this, I was thinking that uh, this interest in protecting wealth uh, rather than creating it seems I don't know, symptomatic of a certain um, senescence uh, creeping into capitalism. It's, it reminds me of an older person uh, moving out of growth stocks into municipal bonds. And uh, it's all about capital preservation. You know, we, we, I mentioned how the bankers are somewhat contemptuous of this this, uh, this goal. But what, what does this say about you know, the, the state of, of capitalism with these immense fortunes that are kind of uh, sequestered, uh, that are not so much engaged with uh, uh, expansion of the system, but just uh, being kept from the prying eyes of government or, or relatives. People who, who claim to love capitalism and care about capitalism thriving should be very, very worried about this. Because what this concentration of capital in an increasingly small group of people really means is that the economic system is ossifying. It's going backwards towards feudalism, where wealth was tied up generation after generation um, among a very small group of families. That's exactly what we see happening now. You may have seen that every year Oxfam produces a study in which they they count the number of people whose wealth exceeds that of the poorest 50% of humanity. In 2010, that number was above 300. In 2017, as of January, it was eight. The number of people who could fit into an extra large golf cart now own wealth equivalent to the bottom 50% of humanity. That's that's neo-feudalism. And we're already seeing the consequences in the, in the extreme decline of up, upward mobility in the U.S. Now when you get an inheritance in the U.S., that doesn't just benefit children or grandchildren of the original rich people. It, it has a knock-on effect to the fifth or sixth generation. And when you see that, you know, say most... Most Americans, especially African Americans, have nothing, nothing but debt when they die, whereas a very tiny group of people at the very top of the socioeconomic scale have billions to distribute to their heirs when they die. You see that we've essentially refutalized ourselves. And just today in, in The Guardian, there was this fascinating article about how some economists there are proposing a return to the traditions of the Middle Ages in the sense of we the people rising up and, and claiming our right to common goods or, or public goods. So this, this article was about claiming um, the law of the forest, which 
basically said ordinary people have a right to make a living and support themselves. You can't, rich people can't just hoard all the public goods to themselves because that was happening in, I believe it was 1217, exactly 800 years ago. The medieval British were hoarding the enclosures for of pasture land and the forests to themselves so that ordinary people couldn't use them. Farmers couldn't farm and uh, shepherds couldn't feed their flocks. And so finally the populace rebelled and said, no, you have to make some public goods available, otherwise people are going to starve. And I, I think we're at that point now, at least an economist in, in England thinks that there has to be a similar charter now, to otherwise people are starving. There we're talking about enormous amounts of money that are that are sheltered and enormous amounts of tax revenue that are foregone uh, in this age of you know constant budget cuts and austerity. You would think that the political class would have an interest in getting its hands on this, but on the other hand, the political class is very dependent upon these folks for um, for for their funding. Uh, you mentioned, for example, the Pritzker family uh, with what twenty five hundred offshore trusts, very big funders of the Democratic Party, very close to Obama. So. I, is there any way that you can imagine that uh, we can actually get a hand on some of these uh, these fortunes, or is it just um, pretty much off limits at this point? That's a good question. I, I think there's a there's a pessimistic answer and sort of a, a long term idealistic answer. The pessimistic answer is, and this comes from an historian who who recently published a book on on what has happened in cases of extreme inequality in the past. He said, when other societies have gotten to the point where we find ourselves now, the only thing that has ever turned around this level of inequality and really redistributed wealth has been um, mass death, either through disease or war. I hope it doesn't come to that. But I, I think that the wealthy people of the world, especially in places like the U.S., they know that this cannot go on. You may have seen a couple of weeks ago, there was an article in The New Yorker about the, the boom in business for luxury underground bunkers. So people, billionaires like Peter Thiel, for example, are buying themselves these, these super high-end bomb shelters where they can survive this, the coming civil war, the coming apocalypse. That seems very unlikely to me that that would succeed, but yeah, I, I have seen it. <laughs> you can only hide underground for so long, I suppose. But as you know, in addition, they're also they've got their private jets and they've bought passports for places like New Zealand. So that people don't form escape plans like this without having a pretty good reason, because those things aren't cheap. They're hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of dollars of investment. You don't do that unless you think that the the manure is about to hit the fan. What's upsetting to me is that people see this, people who are powerful see this and they're like, oh, okay, well, I better take care of me, myself and I. They don't stop and go, hey, maybe I better use my power to, to try and restore some equity to society so that we don't need to have a civil war about it. My pipe dream is if I were a billionaire, I would try to adopt some of the tactics that the, the, the right wing around the world has adopted very successful branding efforts to to get people to change their belief systems about important social issues like the whole Brexit campaign was was very successful in getting people to believe that if Britain just separated from the European Union that it would have 350,000 pounds more per week to give to the National Health Service now that turned out to be a complete fabrication but lots of people came to believe it 
I'm interested in the process by which that was possible because I would like to turn that process to this to the cause of making paying your taxes and patriotism popular again. Not patriotism in the sense of wrapping yourself in the flag and shaking your fist at football players who kneel during the national anthem. I'm talking about like actually putting your money where your mouth is and paying your taxes so that your country can function. We all know what's happened in places like Kansas and Oklahoma where they've cut taxes to the bone and like, shocker, they can't run the public schools anymore and they can't pave the roads. Like whoever could have seen that coming, like anybody who understands how government works, I guess, but they didn't see it coming. Let's learn from that. Let's learn from it and and make it so that a presidential candidate who gets up and brags about not paying taxes for 19 years and how that makes him smart, how that person is instantly stigmatized. Forget legal remedies. That should not be a popular point of view. The kinds of stuff I see in my Facebook feed, like taxes theft, that is the result of a long-term ideological branding effort, and that needs to be reversed. That's that's where I would put my money, and it can be done if someone is willing to do it. I was Brooke Harrington, a professor at the Copenhagen Business School and author of Capital Without Borders from Harvard University Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of offshore banking business by the members from back in 1979. And my, how that game has grown since then. Next, Socialism in One City, Jackson, Mississippi. My next guest, Kalia Kuno, is co-director of Cooperation Jackson, an extremely ambitious and admirable effort to develop a democratic, ecologically sustainable economy in that overwhelmingly black and poor city. Jackson is the capital of the state, but that hasn't brought much wealth or power to its residents. Akuno is also the co-editor, along with Ajamu Nangwaisa, of Jackson Rising, a collection of essays laying out their plan for remaking the city, published by Daraja Press. A couple of points of information. Chukwe Lumumba, who is referred to several times in this interview, was heavily involved in black nationalist politics in the 1970s. He practiced law through the 80s and 90s and then entered politics. He was elected mayor of Jackson on a quite a radical platform in 2013. He died just months after taking office and was succeeded by a highly forgettable politician named Tony Yarber. Chakwe Lumumba's son, Chakwe Antar Lumumba, ran for mayor with the support of Our Revolution, the heir to the Sanders campaign, and the Working Families Party. While it's good news for Akuno and Cooperation Jackson to have an ally in the mayor's office, with the state moving in on the city's finances and powers of governance, there may be some serious limits in what he can do with the office. Okay, here's Kali Akuno. You were on here uh, on this show almost exactly two years ago, talking about Cooperation Jackson, so I'm not sure I want to go over all that material again, but uh, give us the quick version of what you're doing uh, to uh, contributing to that effort to try to turn things around. Uh, what are you doing uh, in 
the very poor capital city of Mississippi. We are taking on uh, the gargantuan task of trying to democratize the, the, the local economy. And uh, the first step in that is uh, building, you know, worker, a federation of worker-owned cooperatives. Uh, and over the past two years, we've taken some very small and modest but hard-earned uh, uh, steps in that direction. Uh, we've been working on uh, expanding the work of our uh, urban farms uh, with the aim of uh, moving Jackson towards becoming uh, a food sovereign uh, community. We have a long way to go in that regard, but uh, our knowledge uh, and base is, is constantly expanding in that work. Um, there's a, a uh, network of supporting cooperatives that have been built around that that are that are uh, developing their systems. And one is a uh, cafe and catering operation, uh, which is uh, trying to orient itself as we speak towards gathering most of its uh, produce from our urban farm network. Uh, and then that piece is tied to our composting and lawn care cooperative, where we're trying to create this loop of having a zero waste uh, cycle, you know, uh, supply chain and, and value chain. And so that's that's been gradually developing this 2017. Uh, all three have taken some major steps uh, forward uh, in developing that process. And we've been learning a lot uh, from that. Um, there's a security co-op uh, that we've developed. Um, there's a community land trust, which is another dimension of uh, kind of development of the solidarity economy work uh, that we've been expanding on. And our hopes is to continue building uh, what we call an eco village within that CLT uh, over the course of the next several years. And the aim of that being to create kind of urban farm plots in a kind of live work community where most of these sites of, of production are, are located in our West Jackson community where we're primarily based. Um, and to have to build a, a series of, of houses uh, using digital fabrication uh, tools and technology uh, that we're also starting a, a cooperative uh, to do, which should come in place in uh, January 2018. Our Center for Community Production will be opening, uh, which is which houses all of our digital fabrication uh, technology and expertise. And with that, like I said, trying to build this uh, eco-village as a model of a sustainable way of living and building uh, completely off the grid houses and uh, doing some community solar uh, projects to help take us off the grid, but build something that's uh, much more autonomous and also carbon neutral to, to the greatest extent possible. And then in addition to that, there's other broader you know, social initiatives that we're involved in. One of the major ones that we're pushing for is to make Jackson what we call a human rights city. And uh, the first concrete step that we're trying to do and try to see implemented uh, by the Lumumba administration is human rights budgeting, uh, which is a form of what most people would know as participatory budgeting, uh, where we're going to try to, at least the first year, struggle to see if we cannot redirect one-fourth of the city's budget uh, and have that be decided by a participatory process uh, through people's assemblies and other kind of democratic vehicles. Uh, some of which are in place, some of which would definitely still need to be developed and, and born. And so these are some of the major pieces that we're doing. And this is all within the framework, as I mentioned, our what we call a Jackson Just Transition plan to have Jackson become a zero waste and zero emission city uh, by 2025. And the aim is to have Jackson become, you know, what we call a transition city. 
uh, wherein there's four, kind of the four components, some of which I just spoke to, but to go over again, that that would mean that Jackson would be a city wherein uh, is developing uh, a greater uh, utilization of both its policy and resources become what we're calling a solidarity city, which is one that's trying to redirect its economy uh, towards a social and solidarity economy framework and economic democracy, where, where there's this human rights charter, so a human rights city. Um, we want to do some extensive uh, relocalization of production through the fab labs and the digital fabrication, so creating a fab city. Uh, and then the final one is making Jackson a sustainable uh, city, you know, that, that meets those targets around zero waste and zero emission. Uh, and we're trying to get these all these systems all aligned and have them develop to be what we believe will then be truly become uh, the most radical city in the United States at the very least in both its program and practice uh, by the year 2025. So these are the things that Cooperation Jackson is pushing and focusing on in the here and now. One of the things I admire about what you're doing, um, aside from the, the ambition of it, is how you really have all these pieces that work together. You're not just changing one little thing here or there, working on a particular project, but you're you're, you're really addressing the issues of ownership, production, ecological uh, uh, footprint, uh, and you've also you know got ideas about a financial institution to make it all to, to finance all activities, and even you're talking about a local money, and I've seen experiments with local money in other places that don't really address any of the issues of ownership or production. They just have this local money that doesn't really change much of anything else. But you guys are addressing all these interrelated activities and structures altogether. It's extremely ambitious, but it's also extremely impressive. Where'd you get the ideas for this? Have you just been, do you have influences, inspirations? Oh, plenty. I mean, we've been studying... <laughs> Almost everything we can get our hands on for for a while, um, and that's the thing I want I would want the audience to clearly know is that you know we put a lot of time and effort, broad forces that really uh, did this design work, you know, uh, which includes a lot of people within the Malcolm's Grassroots Movement, uh, the New African People's Organization, People's Assembly of Jackson, over a good number of years, uh, where we studied you know solidarity economy and uh, co-ops and where they fit into a broader program of social transformation. You know, of course, there's there's the obvious that I know I started studying uh, back as a, as a teenager in the 80s, actually, uh, which is the Mondragon system that we've been, I would say, heavily influenced by, um, both in the positive and the negative. Yeah, they've had some troubles lately. Oh, yeah, they've had some troubles. And I think uh, some of that is self-inflicted wounds, but that's another conversation. You know, we've also been very much influenced uh, on the political side uh, over the years by the Zapatista and that model. Uh, of late, we found a lot of parallels and been doing a lot of study with what's happening in uh, uh, Rojava and in uh, uh, the Kurdish regions of uh, Syria. We've been also heavily uh, influenced by just the, the studying uh, past experiences in, in doing uh, quote unquote major cooperative uh, development, uh, and, and we've been very cognizant of how many of these efforts uh, have failed, and we believe that you, you failures are are part of the process and it's something that you learn from. They're like data, and to use the data effectively, uh, there's a lot to learn from, and so we've taken uh, a lot from the examples of uh, you know past experiences in Guyana, in uh, Tanzania, and uh, Algeria. Uh, we've been doing a lot of study around the kind of deliberate choice around technological integration, 
and systems development in the, the Emilia Romanga area of uh, Italy. Uh, we've been doing some uh, joint study and, and investigation uh, with the development of kind of financial systems and how those work in the development of uh, the cooperatives and the solidarity economy in Quebec. So, you know, you, you see that we, where there's some useful information, we've been trying to gather it, process it, study it, and experiment with it, you know, here uh, in Jackson. And, but, but I would also, you know, there's a lot of experiences close to home. And there's a long history and tradition around uh, cooperative economics and development within the, the Black community in South. Jessica Gordon Nimhard's book, I think, does a, a excellent layout of a lot of that history, uh, you know, in somewhat summary form. Uh, that's been a major source of inspiration and guidance for us. But we've also uh, been in relation and, and are part of uh, the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which is uh, primarily uh, black cooperatives spread throughout, you know, the 13 states of the quote-unquote classic South. Uh, and it's now coming up on its 50th anniversary. So there's a lot of collective knowledge and experience that we've been drawing upon and, and uh, see ourselves as a part of continuing uh, to build. Uh, but we're constantly studying. You know, I just got a copy of, um, to give you a taste of that, an audience a taste of that, I just got a copy of uh, Designing uh, Reality by uh, the Gershenfeld uh, brothers, Neil Allen, and uh, Joel just yesterday, and we ordered several copies to start doing a study group uh, on this very book uh, to help us get further grounded uh, in how to, to kind of integrate digital fabrication uh, and, and a lot of this other kind of new technology into our process. Because uh, one of the things that we're really struggling for and trying to promote is what we call tech or technical uh, democracy you know, with the aim of, uh, for us, a long-term vision of we want to make sure that there is no, what we call a production divide, uh, similar to the digital divide, that there's no production divide as these technologies grow, develop, and expand. Uh, we don't want to leave all of their development of, of you know, automation uh, in this direction to Amazon or Google, which is not going to serve, you know, the working class. Uh, it's only going to serve a set of narrow interests. And so we're trying to figure out how on our small scale, but in an integrated way, can we use this technology to actually benefit the working class by actually submitting its uh, processes to the kind of the democratic uh, control of, of the working class and integrated within our communities in a direct way. So tons of inspirations, tons of sources, constant learning and, and experimentation going on. I'm speaking with Kali Akuno, co-director of Cooperation Jackson, co-editor of Jackson Rising, just out from Daraja Press. Now, as one might expect, uh, the government, the state government of Mississippi is not entirely happy with what's been happening in Jackson, right? Uh, no. <laughs> so so what, have they been, what have they been up to? Uh, they've been up to, I mean, whew, we, we face some major challenges, uh, Doug, that we are trying to seriously figure out there's a lot of internal debate within our social movement here on the ground about how to deal with it. But some of the things that, that, that they have done here recently uh, is attack, you know, some of the climate justice oriented pieces that we've been putting out directly in legislation. Um, you know, we have a, just so your audience knows, we have a Tea Party supermajority uh, that, that controls the state legislature in Mississippi. 
our governor, Phil Bryant, is also fundamentally a member of the Tea Party. So it's not just uh, your old school regular run of the mill Republicans, but uh, a heavy dose of hardcore Christian moralists and uh, uh, radical libertarians and uh, what we call neo-Confederate racists at the helm. And uh, they are focused on doing kind of all of the preventive policies that they can enact. So trying to bar us from strengthening uh, uh, some of the labor laws that we've been trying to work on to counter Taft-Hartley and the right to work regime in the state. Uh, They've been trying to fortify that, uh, again, blocking things that deal with climate change because they're all climate uh, change deniers uh, to the hilt. Matter of fact, uh, you can listen to some right-wing radio shows uh, here in Mississippi where some of the evangelical wing of their forces are actually demanding that the the earth be made hotter sooner and that the climate calamity come sooner. So it's not really a denial position, which is weird, but it's just it's apocalyptical view, which says, let's, let's make it happen faster because it will uh, bring back or usher in the return of Jesus that much quicker. I've actually heard this on the radio, not once, not twice, but on a regular basis here, uh, a lot of right wing radio here. So that gives you a sense of what we're trying to deal with. Jackson is a kind of progressive bubble in this sea. Now, it's not completely isolated. There are a good number of uh, counties which lean heavily towards uh, the Democratic Party. And there's a dynamic here that everybody should know. It's not absolute by any means, but fundamentally, most, almost all of the Republicans in the state are white, and almost all the Democrats in the state are black. So that's a, something that we face. But then there's some particular things that, you know, the legislature is really backing. I mean, the real driving force of it are, I would say, the Greater Chamber of Commerce in Jackson, which represents primarily developers, but also some old extractive oil uh, interests in town, some small tech interests in town. And then a lot of old school, just uh, planter families, which are now very divested, uh, but still very much rooted in those old plantation economy and and plantation rule uh, of the state. Uh, And what they are trying to do, uh, privatize our water system, which is under threat, uh, expand the the control, uh, their political control through creating kind of sub districts, capital corridor being the most chief amongst them that they got passed during the last session, uh, which creates this kind of special district and zone that has its own police force controlled by the governor, its own court system controlled by uh, the governor. Um, and it's it's really kind of creating like an apartheid city within a city wherein, if you just give you one example of what they're trying to do, since Jackson is the capital city, they, they've kind of pushed this through as a beautification program. So they're going to, Jackson has chronically terrible roads and infrastructure, just so everybody knows. But they're trying to just create a zone wherein, you know, there will be no uh, potholes in that particular zone. And of course, uh, that zone is uh, primarily white. It's primarily upper class. uh, And it's in the area where most of uh, the the concentrated employment uh, is in the city in the medical healthcare industries and government uh, on the city, county and state and, and federal level. And so that will be kind of this new pristine uh, area while they basically let the rest of the city rot and and, and go to hell. Um, There's another piece that they're trying to ram down our throats, which is a major 
project of gentrification and displacement that they obviously have uh, on their agenda and are not coy and talking about, and that's uh, flooding a significant portion of what is downtown Jackson to create what they call a one lake project uh, to create more uh, condos and lakefront property. And then the way the laws are in our state, that will allow some major gambling interests to actually come off the Mississippi River and migrate to Jackson and all the profits that come with that. Uh, but the major driving force around right now of you know, the increasing speculation that's taking place in the city and the beginnings of, you know, I think a hardcore push of gentrification and displacement is this medical corridor expansion project. Uh, they got approved over about a decade ago. And the main thing that's been blocking its uh, implementation is the old football stadium uh, that they had to to figure out, you know, what to do with and where to replace. And they finally found an area, uh, and it looks like they've settled on the area in Battlefield Park, which is uh, an extremely impoverished black working class community that they're planning on raising to the ground uh, to build a new dome stadium uh, with the aims of trying to compete with Atlanta and uh, New Orleans as a, as a kind of a site for these major college uh, football games and bowl games and concerts and uh, events of that nature. You know, these are the things that, the economic side of the, the, the equation, the political side of the equation and all that comes with it that we're fighting and confronting, you know, right now. And as you were talking about of our ambition, part of our ambition is driven by, uh, I think, I would argue, a clear assessment of what capital is trying to do and what these reactionary forces are trying to do uh, in the city right now, in part uh, to change the demographics and with that change the political orientation that the city uh, has where it's been able to elect, you know, not one, not two, but several, you know, radical political uh, representatives, both on the, you know, the city level and, and to a certain extent on the state level. So, and uh, we're contending uh, as best we can from the ground up uh, to counter this because, you know, we don't have the resources of the Chamber of Commerce or Trustmark Bank and, and the billionaires there's a couple of billionaires that actually live in town trying to, to block the influence with grassroots pressure and, and social solidarity. I'm speaking with Kelly Akuno, co-director of Cooperation Jackson, co-editor of Jackson Rising, just out from Daraja Press. To conclude this, let's talk about your experience with city government. You've had two allies as mayor, first uh, Chukwe Lumumba, who died suddenly um, after not very much time in office, and then his son, a few years later, ran and, and won uh, Chukwe Antar. How did that work out? Has it been helpful to have people in city government? Or I, I see that you've been somewhat skeptical of what, what the city government can do at this point. So what about your relations with the, uh, the municipal government? It's, uh, it, it definitely can be helpful. I'll put it that way. It definitely can be helpful. And we are looking for it to be helpful. Uh, we are still pushing very much for and trying to advocate that the Lumumba administration uh, institute this broad transition vision that I laid out around the fab city, the human rights city, the sustainable city, and the solidarity city. So these are something that we're still pushing. Uh, we know that there's a certain level of support there. Uh, but, you know, there are a number of, of issues uh, that we are beginning to confront. I think that uh, I've been calling this a Syriza trap. And, uh, you know, initially was counseling uh, last year, counseling him and the broad coalition of forces that this may not be the, the right time for us to try to be in the mayor's office again, 
because it looks like to me that uh, whoever was going to be in that seat uh, was going to have to make some major choices around uh, uh, the privatization of many of the city's kind of assets and resources uh, because there isn't really much of a game plan uh, to deal with the consent decree that the federal government has, you know, over Jackson around its water delivery system. Um, and then when uh, I, for one, just so you know, part of my thinking around that was I was one person who was saying early on that I thought Trump was going to win. Just looked like too much of the map uh, was going to lay out for him. And Hillary Clinton uh, was just a terrible candidate by any stretch of the uh, imagination. So was, we're just always trying to caution folks that he might win. He might actually pull this off. And if he does, uh, it'll be very devastating to the city of Jackson, primarily because there are several uh, pieces of uh, kind of legislation that we've been fighting, uh, like the takeover, uh, the attempted takeover of the city's airports. Uh, the In 20, what is this, 2016, the state legislator passed some crazy legislation uh, which gave the governor control of uh, Jackson's airports, which is the largest airport uh, in the state, because they just see some development opportunities that haven't been realized, quote unquote, yet. And, you know, this is now tied up in the courts. And one of the things I always, you know, fear that if and when that gets to some higher courts, number one, we know on the regional level, we'll probably lose. And definitely in the state, we'll probably lose, just given the political orientation uh, of the judges here. So knowing that that would have to go to federal court and ultimately probably to the Supreme Court, uh, we now know that we have a Supreme Court that it would not rule in Jackson's favor. Just looking at these kind of dynamics, I was very cautious around uh, us being in a position very much like Syriza where we have to administer austerity. I thought that would be something uh, potentially or could be something very detrimental to the left as a whole in the United States uh, for something and a politician of radical promise to have to come in and then reverse much of the platform that he actually ran under uh, was something I was trying to avoid. In any, of, in any sense, you know, he's there now. We've been making some of our criticisms of certain decisions known to a certain extent, uh, both here in the community and some of that spilled out international. You know, the aim is to make sure of the criticism is to hold, number one, him and, this, and the rest of the city government accountable to the agenda that was been laid out, that there's been a broad consensus, consensus around uh, in our community now for some years. And to see that, you know, not deviate towards a right orientation, but actually move further towards a left orientation. But we have our part to play. You know, we have more base building work, I think, in the community that we have to do. Uh, there's a deeper level of education that we have to do so folks clearly understand uh, the stakes and the consequences uh, and be prepared to take some real radical action to come up with some concrete alternatives uh, rather than neo, the neoliberal austerity and privatization measures, uh, which are going to be rammed down our throat in the next couple of years. Uh, having worked in the Lumumba administration, you know, four years ago and uh, witnessed some of the beginnings of this type of pressure, you know, being applied uh, to, to Chokwe Lumumba, you know, that's my kind of frame of reference, uh, in part for saying in this, and, and 
just trying to get folks. I understand the pressures and the dynamics, you know, that Antar might face. Looking at, you know, how do I keep the the how do I pave the uh, the roads? How do I uh, keep the the city employees on board on board and not have to furlough them? And you get faced with a bunch of kind of what appear to be short term fixes, uh, most of which have very long term detrimental consequences. So I think, you know, we have to start getting prepared in the hope that we can help play a part uh, in getting him prepared to be able to make choices that may require some short term sacrifice, but have long term benefits for the city. So I still think it's helpful. There's still a number of things that we know that we can do in terms of shifting policy uh, and procedure around uh, in the city to support uh, the development of cooperatives. There's still a lot of things there that municipal government can do that we're going to continue uh, to push them to do. We know that uh, to a certain extent there's a, a open and favorable ear uh, there in his administration. Uh, we know this from knowing him, um, you know, and being part of the same organization for many years. Uh, so we think it's helpful, uh, but we don't just want it. I mean, I think our thing, we, we're just not looking for something to be helpful. Uh, we are still pushing for there to be a more transformative role that, you know, the, the local municipal government can actually play. But in order to do that, it's going to have to, to really uh, make some sound choices around uh, not bending uh, towards neoliberal, you know, logic. And, and uh, that's going to be a major struggle. And I think it's ultimately going to take strong social movement, pressure, pushing and prodding to help them stay on, on the course so that's what we're aiming for. Uh, we think in the long term, there'll be more uh, positive things in this direction and negative things in this direction, particularly given, you know, my, my view in part is, you know, once the state legislature sits, uh, uh, gets back in session in January and they start coming, you know, with uh, a whole reactionary slew of preventative uh, measures and laws aimed specifically at curbing anything that Chokwe Antar can do, I think that's going to uh, uh, galvanize a broad social movement here, bring most of the pieces back together uh, towards defending our city's interests and advancing our program. That was Kali Akuno, co-director of Cooperation Jackson and co-editor of Jackson Rising, recently published by Daraja Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, a bit of Parliament's 1975 masterpiece, Chocolate City, which provides the epigraph to one of the chapters in Jackson Rising. Till next week, bye. Hey, uh, we didn't get our 40 acres and a mule, but we did get you, CC. <laughs> yeah. Moving in around ya. God bless CC and his vanilla suburbs. What's happening, blood? <laughs>